Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. We just witnessed the 57th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington, during which more than 250,000 people gathered in Washington to demand that Congress provide civil and voting rights protections for African-Americans. At the time, this march represented the largest demonstration which had been held in the United States. The 1963 march was promoted by the then existing civil rights organizations and a host of labor unions that provided support for efforts, mainly in the South, to confront and overthrow the ironclad Jim Crow, which dominated the lives of African-Americans. Prominent as speakers during that march were Dr. Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Dorothy Height, James Farmer, Roy Wilkins, and A. Philip Randolph. The 1963 March on Washington brought together on a national stage the primary organizers of the civil rights movement. And this event is credited with being instrumental in gaining the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Barely a week before the 50th anniversary commemoration, another African-American, Jacob Blake, became a victim of police brutality when he was shot seven times in the back by a white police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Blake is now added to a long list of African-Americans who have been brutalized or killed by police excesses. This shooting reignited a series of protests and street demonstrations across America in which the Black Lives Movement has been involved. This series of protests and demonstrations show that many of the issues which were addressed during the 1963 March on Washington remain with us today. It raises the question as to whether the victories of the civil rights movement continue to protect African-Americans and racial minorities today, and how does the Black Lives Movement compare with the 1960 civil rights organizations? Joining us to discuss these questions are Ajamu Dillahunt, Holloway, a graduate student at the University of Michigan, who is also a graduate of NCCU, and a community organizer, and also attorney Don Blagroves, the executive director of Emancipate North Carolina, and a proud graduate of the NCCU School of Law. So we thank each of you for joining with us for this discussion. Happy to be here. Glad to be here too. Well, let's start this uh, discussion. Uh, if I, I'm gonna ask both of you, if you would kind of describe to our audience your connections to the uh, Black Lives Movement. So why don't we start with Attorney Blagrove. My connection to the Black Lives Matter movement is not so much connected with uh, 
the organization of Black Lives Matter because I don't really have any direct affiliation with them. But uh, I am, as executive director of Emancipate NC, we have focused uh, very heavily for years on police accountability, ending mass incarceration, making radical changes to our criminal justice system. So in this moment, we are doing essentially the same work. We are just doing it uh, with much, much more attention, with much more uh, support from folks on the street. And we are really using this moment and the energy of this moment to be in the streets with the people, to um, encourage the people to use their power, and then to help educate them <clears throat> about next steps. That is really the role that we are seeing, are taking and wrapping ourselves around folks who are protesting, protecting their rights, doing litigation um, on their behalf, offering defense bail, uh, bailing folks out of jail who are arrested, making sure that they have everything that they need to be able to safely express their constitutional right to protest and also to protect them against the system that they're uh, protesting against. Yeah, and at the moment, I'm uh, not connected to Black Lives Matter as an organization or the movement for Black Lives, but I do closely align myself uh, with their agenda and in conversation with organizations who are part of uh, that network. But in 2014, um, after the murder of Mike Brown, uh, Eric Gardner, and countless others, uh, that's when I began to join uh, the struggle to end the school to prison pipeline. And I remember, I was thinking about it yesterday, uh, there was a panel, I believe it was my senior year of high school, at uh, NCCU's uh, School of Law, uh, and Professor Joyner was there, uh, and a question was raised uh, about, you know, what, you know, about SROs and schools, and uh, you kind of blurted out, you know, should they even be there at all? And, you know, as we're in this period of the struggle uh, against police violence, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of that because, you know, a lot of people are making the connections between police violence uh, in the community and in schools uh, because it's very well there. So I uh, haven't done work around the school to prison pipeline and then uh, at NCCU uh, doing work around organizing HBCUs in North Carolina. We hosted our annual Black University Summit and uh, held actions in solidarity uh, with those who are victims of police violence. Um, yeah, I've been connected to the struggle. And then, of course, my work in Durham with the Militarized German Palestine uh, Coalition and work with the uh, Black Youth Project 100. The civil rights movement was kind of uh, directed by uh, several different organizations. Uh, the uh, NAACP, which was the oldest organization, the Congress of uh, Racial Equality, uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating uh, Committee, and uh, the uh, Southern Conference Leadership uh, Conference, which uh, Dr. King uh, led. And uh, the times that they operated was a little different than the times that we are experiencing today. Can you kind of talk about the importance of the difference in the environments and the similarities uh, between the 1960s and uh, where it is that we find ourselves today. I'll start with that one. I think uh, the similarities are unfortunately easy. We're fighting the same struggle. It manifests itself sometimes differently. It, it produces the things that spark the rage, spark the the anger, spark the need to be heard, are 
manifest themselves differently. You know, we didn't have video of Emmett Till's murder, but we also didn't need it. Um, but but you do need visuals, right? And if, if it wasn't for his mother opening up that casket and that picture being shown all over the country in, in magazines and in Jet and in Ebony, you need it. There's always been visuals that are needed to help make folks understand, you know, with the girls in Birmingham that were killed in the in the church bombing. There was something about those girls that those images that resonated around the country that made people say, this is where we're going to draw the line in the sand. So those things are very similar. Imagery is similar and it's important. Now, I think one of the downfalls of the way imagery is presenting itself in this current environment is number one, it, it absolutely jizes people and gets us out, but there's also this level of trauma and traumatization that comes with watching Black men and women die over and over again at the hands of law enforcement. That is, I don't know, it does something to your soul. It causes a weariness and it causes a heaviness and anxiety that I'm not sure we are fully able to process in this moment. But I also think that it is, um, it is important imagery was, so the parallels of imagery and the importance of imagery, I think are, are, strong during both eras. I think what is different now is the rapid nature of organizing, communicating because of social media, how quickly these things are happening in a way that is spontaneous um, and organic, but also the use of social media. And again, I think it's a double-edged sword. The use of social media is absolutely a benefit to the struggle in its current form because of the immediacy of it, the ability to communicate information quickly and to masses of folks that on, you know, folks on mass, the ability to be able to um, organize, meet people, places, you know, tell folks where we're going to be, what we're going to do, whatever. The downside of that, though, um, is that that level of spontaneity necessarily is void of intentional, deliberate, strategic planning in a way or organizing around a common mission, articulating and everybody understanding and being on the same page about what our goals are, regardless of how we're going to achieve them. But I don't know, I'm still like the verdict still out with me. I mean, obviously we don't know, there is no right way to do this because if there was, we wouldn't still be doing it. (laughs) So I think that there are some Definite downsides, though, to the lack of one singular voice, one singular message, one singular goal with the outcome of the protest and to understand. And I think there's also a real big lack of understanding about the need to do more. Protesting is great and it is important and it is necessary, but then we got to do the hard work. And that translation, the translation of the hard work that comes after the protest, I think we're still working on in this particular moment. Yes, yes, I agree 100%. And, you know, I would say another similarity uh, of, you know, the rights movement in this current period is the foundational role of historically black colleges uh, and universities. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, the spark of the sit-in movement, you know, uh, you know, and, and there's a debate here, you know, in 1957, students at North Carolina Central University set in at the Royal Ice Cream Parlor, you know, in Durham, North Carolina, although it, was un, it wasn't successful, uh, you know, it predated, you know, the 1960s sit-in uh, movement, you know, uh, that took place uh, at A&T. 
Uh, but that movement, uh, that sit-in led to a, a national movement and HBCUs, almost every HBCU across the country uh, engaged in some sit-in activity. Uh, and then you had the formation of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which had campus affiliates like the Nonviolent Action Group, uh, the Nashville Student Movement, uh, you know, and, and so many others. Uh, and then in the, when the movement for Black Lives emerged, uh, you know, you have discussions within classrooms at historically black colleges, students who are eager uh, to, you know, uh, take an active role uh, in, their, in their struggle to, to transform uh, the white supremacist society they live in. So uh, I think that's a clear similarity. Uh, and then you also have internationalism. Uh, you know, in 1960, you know, it was a worldwide revolution. And there's, there's so much, you know, scholarship uh, that lays out very clearly the international character of the 1960s. And even those in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, and other organizations were looking at the continent of Africa and anti-colonial struggles there. Uh, and here, um, you know, as you know, uh, undergrad at North Carolina Central University, not only being able to travel to South Africa, uh, but to also see the many questions that we were raising on on, on campus uh, and imposing in the state of North Carolina and the entire country, students in South Africa were asking similar questions. So whether it be uh, renaming the billions, taking down of statues, uh, these conversations were happening and there was dialogue between students in South Africa and students uh, within uh, the United States. So, you know, there, there's clear similarities and another similarity uh, is the crisis of the consciousness. Uh, so although we have, you know, a host of educational institutions uh, in terms of access and in terms of the conscience of the masses, it still remains uh, underdeveloped and that is intentional uh, amongst the power structure uh, to keep our people uh, in a constant state of acquiescence. You know, I actually learned that word uh, in the political science class with Dr. Hall, you know, he said, <laughs> it's funny how he presented, he's like, you know, oftentimes they want our people to acquiesce. He says, so now that you heard this word, look it up use it in the cafeteria with your friends. And so once he, you know, gave us the blessing to continue to use the word, you know, acquiescence has uh, been on my, my radar. And I think, you know, it has been intentional uh, from uh, the power structure for us to do that and to oppose that acquiescence that's so entrenched from day one, uh, whether it be in K through 12 or whatever, uh, is a difficult task. But, uh, you know, there's efforts among movement people to raise the consciousness of our people. So there's a similarity to, uh, you know, not only recognize the crisis of our people's consciousness, but to do something about it. Uh, and then the differences, I would say, is that capitalism has gone into an even deeper uh, state of crisis, uh, whether it be environmentally, economically, socially, politically, capitalism uh, is on its uh, final edge, and we are seeing the impacts on our community uh, in the context of COVID-19. Uh, we see that, you know, uh, having a capitalist framework in terms of a healthcare model is not sustainable. Uh, and we see countries uh, like uh, Cuba uh, who can send doctors to 28 countries. <laughs> and here in the U.S., we can't even deal with one state. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a clear uh, difference in terms of, um, you know, capitalism uh, and our struggle against it and uh, the limited time, you know, in terms of earth shift, you know. Well, you know, that's a, a great summary uh, from, from the two of you uh, with respect to the uh, similarities and the, uh, the differences between the uh, two movements. I just want to just add uh, one, one point. Um, you know, the, the, the civil rights movement focused principally on the South. Uh, that is where the, it was perceived at the time that the uh, more ironclad Jim Crow uh, dominance uh, was, uh, was occurring. 
and many of the uh, young people that uh, Jamu uh, mentioned uh, with respect to SNCC uh, came from the north into the south. Uh, and uh, many of them were the children of the, uh, uh, their parents who were part of the Great Migration, sending African-Americans uh, to, uh, to the north. And uh, so there was a kind of uh, uh, immersion into uh, an untested waters that sparked a lot of the outrage by those uh, students during that time. And of course, there were a lot of uh, young people from the uh, sons and daughters of the South who also got involved uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the movement. But uh, uh, it was clearly uh, a time that you had a youth component of the movement, and then you had the uh, old heads, uh, the uh, NAACP uh, and uh, those groups. So we're gonna take a break uh, right now, and uh, we're gonna continue this discussion of the uh, comparisons and uh, uh, distinctions with uh, the uh, civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter when uh, we return to this discussion. So stay with us and we will be right back. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, thank you so very much for uh, staying with us uh, as we continue this uh, discussion, uh, doing an analysis and comparison of the uh, civil rights movement uh, from the uh, 1950s and 1960s and the uh, Black Lives Movement, uh, which has uh, exploded uh, throughout uh, our country uh, today. Our guests our attorney uh, uh, Don Lagro, who is the uh, director of uh, Emancipate uh, North Carolina, uh, and uh, Jamu Dillahunt Holloway, who is a graduate student at the University of uh, Michigan, uh, getting ready to get his uh, doctorate in, uh, in history uh, from there. And when we uh, took our break, uh, we were talking about similarities and differences between uh, then and uh, now, as we look at some 60 years uh, later, uh, 50 to 60 years later of uh, this uh, movement and the comments uh, basically centered around this notion that uh, uh, while there are substantial differences, that the fundamental issues are still the same and the struggle is emerging around uh, pretty much uh, the uh, same uh, issues. Let me just ask our, our guest to talk about, and uh, Don, I think you kind of hinted at this, is the kind of disorganized uh, notion of the uh, Black Lives uh, Matter, since uh, it, it's really more of a, uh, a movement than it is an organization uh, contrasted with uh, the uh, 50s and 60s where you had uh, as a guiding hand uh, different organizations. And although they uh, had different philosophies in, in part, they were all part of an organized structure. And the, the impact of that uh, kind of disorganization or decentralization 
on the uh, on, on where the movement is today and its uh, positive or negative uh, influences. So I think um, with anything, there are going to be negatives and positives to 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 however things are done. You know that is our legal legal training at work, right? Um, so I would push back against the idea that what is happening now is chaotic in the sense that I think what we are, it is, I would term it less chaotic, more fruitful, because what we are seeing is a evolution of multiple routes to get to the liberation that we seek. And I think that is important. And I think that is critical to making sure that we do not limit ourselves as a people to one one outcome um, and, and have tunnel vision towards one thing and not really fully circum, circum, have circumspection or vet the collateral consequences of that one singular focus. For example, and, and you know I might get in trouble for this, but I think that one of the one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest downfalls of integration and that kind of singular focus on desegregation was that we as a community lost our love or gave up on our, our independent economies. Um, black businesses were, you know, we just did not consider fully the collateral consequences of what integration would do. And, and what it would do to to the to the best parts of our community, right? Um, and I think with this kind of fruitful uh, organized chaos that we're seeing now, you get an opportunity because there is no one leading voice. You get an opportunity for everyone's ideas to be fully vetted. And I hope my hope is that as as these ideas and these revolutionary concepts about how we get to freedom, as we advance with them, we are able to boil them down and consolidate them into something that is holistic and that is and that has a 360 degree view on how we make sure that everyone is encompassed in, in the freedom, everyone is encompassed in um, destroying the carceral system as we know it and creating a new system and an imagining safety in a different way for black folks um, and rebuilding some of these grossly inequitable systems. So what I hope to see happen is that we take all of these radical ideas, because I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone in this current movement say something that when it hit my ears, I thought, well, that's insane or that's that's foolishness. We can't do that. You know, like that, that's not possible. But then having the space to allow that person to fully articulate that idea to fully crystallize for me what it was that they were presenting and then give me the opportunity to say, huh, maybe that is doable. Maybe we can do this. I think the difference between this movement and you know the previous civil rights and black nationalist movements, you know, and I think that was true in 
all organizational settings back then, you know, whether you were as radical as, you know, the weatherman or you were as passive as, you know, Dr. King's movement. I think there was always this kind of patriarchal, we're going to tell you what to do. We're going to show you how to do it. And there is no real room for dissension. Either you with us or you're not. Right. And I think in this space where we are right now, while it feels chaotic, I think it is really fruitful for some really amazing ideas. And we have to create space for everyone to throw stuff out. And I'm hopeful that as we move forward from this moment, doing the hard work that to bring about the liberation that we're seeking, that we can boil down some of these ideas, take out the best of what everybody is offering and create something that is sustainable and real. Adama, you, you're the scholar of, of history. Uh, you're at the uh, all but dissertation uh, stage of your uh, professional uh, development uh, here. Uh, how do you see this, uh, this, this notion of organized versus uh, uh, not organized? Uh, well, let me just say, uh, how can organized oppression be successfully attacked by disorganized resistance? Well, you know, I, I study the past and, and moved by the past and, you know, and of the belief that organization uh, is critical uh, to bringing about uh, the revolutionary transformation uh, we seek. And I'm also of the belief, belief of, you know, studying the past that revolution uh, is a process. Uh, and it's a, a long process. When you look at the Haitian Revolution, you look at the Cuban Revolution, they were revolutions uh, of a process. Uh, and so I think uh, there needs to be uh, a consolidation, there needs to be organization, uh, and it has to be a unified program in order to defeat the power structure we're up against because they are indeed uh, a power structure. Power structure, And uh, oftentimes, I think in this period, we look at uh, our enemy, you know, the United States as a domestic, uh, you know, enemy, but it's, you know, really empire, it's an international enemy. The, the United States has caused the suffering of so many people across the world. And so as we move forward in this period, I think locally, uh, it is important. I think we act locally. Uh, also, we need to think globally, but also act globally too. Uh, if we look at the United States and Latin America, look at the United States in the Caribbean, look at the United States in the Middle East, look at the United States in Africa. Uh, there's groups like Black Alliance for Peace, uh, a national organization, alliance of organizations who are working to get the U.S. out of Africa. Uh, U.S. has launched a, a U.S. military, uh, you know, intervention in, you know, with an exploitative agenda. And there's organizations who are responding to that. Uh, but in large part, this is disconnected from domestic. Uh, and in large part, uh, major news outlets and other forces outside of democracy now have been trying to confine the movement to only a domestic uh, approach. Uh, and so a lot of organizations have uh, fallen victim to that. And some may be because of funding or other things. But uh, I think uh, at the moment, the movement is victim of uh, short termism. And I think there has to be a, a unified approach, a collective study. And the movement for Black Lives is uh, trying to bring that level of organization and a coalition of groups together. Uh, but of course, given the enemy we're up against, there's uh, a lot of difficulties in doing that. But I'm of the belief that, uh, you know, this period of uprising is important, uh, but without strategic direction uh, of organization, 
uh, I think we lose uh, the momentum uh, that we seek. Like you see the NBA was almost on the verge of uh, going on a strike, but you know, LeBron James wanted to consult Barack Obama. And while it's okay to, you know, uh, in terms of imagery to see Obama in the White House, we have to, you know, come to terms that he was uh, a president of an empire and that the conditions of our people did not transform under uh, Barack Obama. And so taking advice from him, someone who's a part of the establishment, uh, totally lost. And so I saw a friend and comrade who tweeted and said, when will we get to the point where forces like LeBron or people, athletes who take these important stands uh, will come to the left, the black left, uh, for some some sort of leadership? And I think we really have to uh, get to the stage where we can uh, have that program where we consider legitimate political force uh, in this country so that when forces like uh, LeBron or, you know, celebrities uh, take these profound stances that we can move them in the direction of long-term uh, transformation and in the process of, of some sort of revolution. You know, Jama, um, the whole notion of, you know, um, kind of the off-script action, if you will, and, and you and, and uh, Don have both talked about this, and it makes me think about something else that you mentioned, which were the sit-ins. So we had sit-ins that originated from NCCU, um, of course, ANT that we all know about. And those sit-ins didn't necessarily come out of, you know, uh, an organized, um, you know, uh, large body decision that this is something we can do. And and these actions, as, as you know very well, can result in progress. Um, but then we also have those collective uh, large organization plans that are put in place. So if we think about Rosa Parks, right, that was by design, that was thought about, that was considered. And so that we do need to have, you know, the combination of the spontaneous and then also the organized. And, and I think your point, both of your points is that we've got this spontaneity and we've got this energy and this action. Uh, and, and we're at a point now where we need to think about how do we consolidate that energy so that we've got um, more of a collective power as opposed to separate individuals or separate small groups um, making statements, which are very important statements to make, but at the end of the day, do we see this, this very real progress that we need? And so my question to you both is, uh, what is your advice for people who recognize that and agree with you? Where do we look to today for that consolidation and organization? So I would, I would argue, and I would say, at least I can say in North Carolina, that organization is happening. It's happening, um, you know, I am a member of the North Carolina, North Carolina um, Black and Brown Policy Network, which is an organization of, of policymakers who from from every walk of life, because again, it's important for us strategically and planning, it's important for us not police accountability and to really be able to tackle these issues and use this momentum to create positive change intersectionally. So we have to see that poverty is at the center of this thing, right? Race and poverty are at the center of it. So we can't talk about reforming or or radically changing the criminal justice system without talking about how we create sustainable income for folks and sustainable housing and environments that are safe for our children and schools that are free of SROs. 
Um, so there is that level of organizing happening. The Black and Brown Policy Network here in North is doing real strong work. Um, Blueprint and C is bringing together folks to do, to really do some collective kind of think tank um, collaboration about what policies we move forward, how we, um, and how, how we, how we transform this street energy into policy progress, into cultural changes inside of systemic systems um, so that we can see ultimately the results that we want to see. Uh, but I think that part of, and I'm going to show my age here, part of, part of the issue is that these young folks that, that, are, um, that are in the streets, they feel very, very strongly, like most young people do, that the old people don't know what they're talking about, right? That, that, we, that if we knew what we was talking about, we would, they wouldn't be in the streets, right? That, that they, don't, they don't trust, they don't trust our voice, they don't trust our experience, they don't trust our leadership wholesale. Um, and, and I think that to be fair to the children, we are some of that. We are some of that honest, right? Because we let up on the gas in a way that we shouldn't have. Like we let up on the gas in a way that we have a whole group of kids that are just now waking up. They just woke, which is crazy to me. The idea of being woke is nuts because how do you as a people come from the struggle that we came from in the 50s and 60s and and well into the 70s before you know before the FBI systemically dismantled our systems and our structures right how do you go from that to having a generation of folks who fall back asleep they fell back asleep that's on us right and now that they're awake they mad at us that we let them fall asleep that we didn't we didn't keep them awake right and so we have to own some of that so i think there is I, what I am hopeful about and what I'd work to do in, in these spaces is try to try to rebuild that trust. But they are very just, I mean, what I find is that they are very distrustful of my 40 something voice. They don't want it. And I have to work very hard to be like, look, y'all, we on the same page, but you got to do the work. Like we can't just yell and scream. You got to be, you got to do the work and you can't be the system you don't know. If I've said that once, I've said that 5,000 times over the last six months. You cannot be the system you don't understand. But there is a radicalness about them that they have such harsh distrust of anybody that they see as a system actor or anybody who they see or, you know, they see uh, what was the word that you were using? Um, it was it that your professor taught you. Say it. Say oh, it. From yes. Back acquiesce. They feel like me going to law school and getting my law degree is an acquiescence to the system. Whereas me, who was raised by folk, who, you know, was always awake, so to speak, you know, who based my whole life on a book called The Spook Who Sat By The Door, which means that somebody got to be on the inside. We got to know their strategies. You can't be the enemy you don't know. Right. And the only way you get to know your enemy is to get in there and to be a counter agent. Right. But they don't trust that 
at all. Like they don't get that. I promise you, I cannot tell you how many copies of the spook who sat by the door. I have literally just passed out to people like y'all need to read this. This is there's a method to this madness, but there has to be some method. So I'm not saying that we don't have to get there. And I think if we don't get there, if we don't get to some level of organization, if we don't get to some net level of collective institutional memory about the struggle that we pull from, it's going to be very difficult for us to acquire real substantial change. But I am hopeful that we can get there. It's just that we got to build. We got to rebuild the trust. This whole generation of children, we let go to sleep and then wake up on their own. Yeah, they mad at us. They're not happy with us, and rightfully so. This is the Legal Legal Review, and uh, we were talking with uh, Don Blagrove and Jamu Dillahunt about the struggles of the uh, movement today as opposed to the uh, 1960 struggles. We're going to take our break right now and rejoin this very informative discussion in a few minutes. So we want you to just uh, stay with us and we'll be right back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Don Blagrove, who is the executive director of Emancipate North Carolina and a very proud graduate of NCCU School of Law and Ajamu Dillahunt Holloway, who is a proud graduate of North Carolina Central University and a current PhD student in history at the University of Michigan. And we've been talking this hour about the similarities and differences between the civil rights movement and the current Black Lives Matter movement. So Ajamu, um, so Attorney Blagrove gave us a, a really good description of uh, the frustration that many of the youth are feeling and the distrust that they have for uh, those of us who are in a different age group, their, their elders, if you will. And I wanted to get your, your response to her view of the distrust and if that's what you see, if that's what you've experienced, and then also to talk about where we can go when we're thinking about trying to organize and to come together collectively. Yeah, uh, so I, I think uh, uh, Attorney Blagro was spot on and I think there is a, a mistrust that exists there, but the origins and the why of it, uh, I think is important. And I think, uh, you know, it's a result of the dangers of uh, over historical simplification, uh, you know, of the past and not really uh, engaging in a thorough way about movements that came prior. Uh, but, you know, young people are rightfully uh, angry because, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, capitalism uh, has done a, a number on us, whether it be uh, access to higher education, uh, the mass amount of debt, uh, whether it be uh, environmentally, whether it be in the community, whether it be the individualism it promotes, whether it be the lack of wages uh, in terms of jobs. You know, young people are rightfully frustrated and are, you know, victims uh, of the capitalist um, ideology. Uh, but I would also uh, suggest that uh, there is a level of trust that exists and there's been a lot of intergenerational uh, approaches. I mean, in, in 2014, when we were doing work to end the school to prison pipeline in Wake County as a high school student, we were in coalition 
uh, as high school students, the Youth Organizing Institute, also known uh, as NC Heat, North Carolina Heroes Emerging Amongst Teens, we were in coalition with lawyers at Legal Aid of North Carolina and advocates for children's services uh, with a parent organization, Education Justice Alliance. Uh, and, you know, we were doing work and going to school board meetings, uh, demanding uh, solutions, not suspensions, counselors, not cops. Uh, but of course, within any coalition, whether it be uh, age, or whether it be uh, you know, uh, ideological differences. There were points of tension. There were points where young people wanted to do this, and there were points where uh, the uh, you know parents and you know elders were kind of like you know maybe we shouldn't do this. But at the end of the day, uh, young people were actors in our own right, and if we did something, you know, the parents were opposed to. They didn't you know push us aside. You know, they said, okay, you know, we're going to support you regardless. But you know, let's have a a discussion about you know this method. Let's you know let's talk with each other. Uh, and I think. When we look at the 1960s and it's often uh, put into the context of, you know, there was the young people and there was the, the elders uh, or, you know, the older generation. Uh, but in actuality, uh, they were one in the same. I mean, if you look at the dynamics of SNCC, you know, Ella Baker brought the students to Shaw University and remained a constant level of support. But if you look at the executive secretary from 1961 until I believe 1966, until he became director of the International Bureau of SNCC, Je uh, James Foreman uh, was 30 something years old. He was a master's student, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting his master's in African history. And Bob Moses was in the PhD program uh, in mathematics in 1960, but, you know, decided to go south and, and join SNCC. So I would argue uh, once we begin uh, to raise the consciousness and we begin to reevaluate uh, the understanding of the 1960s, and we begin to uh, look at the importance of intergenerational approach and a relationship between young people uh, and older comrades that is more of a, you know, uh, re respect, you know, relationship instead of, you know, um, you know, like a, you know, uh, uh, teaching, you know, the young, you know, that type of thing. I think we begin uh, to see it. I think it's, you know, a, a both-sided thing. And I also think uh, that if we, you know, only look at 1960s and 70s, uh, and then jump to, you know, this current period, uh, we're not taking into account some very, very important shifts. Now, my uh, my study is on Black Workers for Justice, founded in 1982 in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, uh, and uh, has been on the, the a political uh, force for, for quite some time. Uh, but they represented a major uh, pushback to Reagan uh, and, uh, you know, state politics uh, in terms of the working class. And they, they have the model that, you know, we're connecting uh, the labor movement and the black freedom struggle. And they did that. They saw that uh, the uh, struggles in the workplace and the community were interconnected. Uh, and they, they, they helped build UE 150. Uh, they are now on the front lines of building uh, the Southern Workers Assembly uh, and workers all across the South, especially in the context of this pandemic, are turning to the Southern Workers Assembly, Black Workers for Justice and UE 150 uh, for that leadership. And so uh, the 1980s represented a very mobilized uh, movement, especially here in the state of North Carolina, building off of what historian uh, Bob Korstad wrote on civil rights unionism of, on Local 22. Uh, so, you know, we, we have a, a tradition to build upon, but again, it just goes back to the crisis of the historical consciousness that we must deal with and that we must address because in K through 12, you're not gonna get uh, the history uh, to that will lead you to uh, spark some sense of hope uh, to engage in a struggle to transform the society that we live in. So we have to do it. Those of us who are conscious, we have to make a concentrated effort uh, to do that. Uh, and that has to be uh, nothing secondary, but a core part of our program. So not just political education, but establishing 
uh, sustained revolutionary educational projects. All right. well, you know, this, this trust uh, that, uh, that, that, we, that we're confronted with uh, can be very dangerous. Uh, I, I was a part of the uh, civil rights uh, movement and I'm very much uh, aware of the impact of uh, COINTELPRO, mm -hmm. uh, which was launched by the government to uh, destroy uh, the uh, African-American organizations. And I see uh, today in the uh, demonstrations that, uh, that are ongoing across the country, what I have uh, concluded to be agent provocateurs uh, that have been uh, directed uh, to uh, engage with uh, these uh, demonstrations and to create uh, the chaos and the uh, uh, violence uh, that has uh, uh, kind of punctuated a lot of the public perception of what the uh, Black Lives Movement uh, is all about. And that's a very dangerous uh, label uh, to, uh, to have, and that's vastly different than a situation where you have uh, the uh, police authority or city authorities basically trying to brutalize those people who are marching. And then back in the civil rights days, it was a peaceful uh, demonstration. So I think you know, the, the inability to really uh, uh, ferret out those agents and those individuals who join these uh, marches for the sole intent of creating uh, chaos and, and, and painting uh, the picture and they're not being attention publicly being given uh, to those efforts which seek to undermine the legitimacy of the issues that's being uh, raised uh, by the uh, current uh, demonstrators who are out and uh, who want to uh, occupy the streets. And, you know, Irv, along those same lines in terms of how, you know, the picture that's being painted uh, and the response. So that's a response to this movement. And another response to the movement is this kind of backlash, a uh, racial backlash, uh, the dog whistling, the racist responses. That's something that we have as a similarity between any time within our history that focuses on racial progress. Um, uh, Jamu, let's let's start with you, and then we'll go to uh, Attorney Blagrove and just get your thoughts and reactions to this notion of you know you've got uh, people of color, black people who are seeking for you know to get justice and equality, and then the racist response to that and the um, compartmentalizing of of the races, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. You know. Um as we look at what uh, took place in Kenosha uh, and people expressing their rightful anger against uh, one of the biggest enemies uh, of the people, uh, the police, uh, and, you know, to confirm that, you know, just in terms of their role, uh, in terms of the civil rights movement, you know, the enemy, of course, was a Klan, but uh, also uh, one of the major opponents uh, to uh, the struggle to achieve the right to vote and the struggle to achieve greater democracy uh, was the police. Uh, and so you see a 70 year old kid uh, with a, you know, um, assault rifle at action shoot two people and the police, you know, do nothing. And so in my estimation, they confirm uh, which side they were on uh, in terms of uh, how we we're trying to move society forward. And I know uh, Kenosha is, you know, um, a, a small place, uh, you know, uh, in uh, one department, but I think is representation 
of a host of uh, different uh, police departments. Uh, and so uh, given that this threat against police violence is so real, uh, Attorney Blagrove mentioned it uh, before, is that when you have the empire at its knees, we have this mass engagement, uh, you don't approach it narrowly. Uh, you approach it uh, with organization and you hit it on all battlefronts. So uh, in addition to the international character, uh, there are other oppressed people within the United States, uh, our Latinx comrades uh, who are uh, struggling, our indigenous comrades who are struggling against uh, the United States empire. Uh, so, and when we uh, see these uh, struggles uh, as interconnected uh, and approach the power structure in a broad-based coalition, I think we begin to move uh, you know, in that direction. And then uh, I think uh, there's a host of developments taking place, whether it be the Poor People's Campaign, uh, whether it be the Movement for Black Lives, uh, and whether it be a host of other organizations uh, who are uh, really showing the inter interconnectedness uh, of our struggle and trying to move against you know, this narrowness uh, in terms of um, our approach to to building a better world. So I, I hope that answered the question. I hope I understood it properly. But, uh, you know, I, I, w I really wanted to emphasize uh, what went on in, in Kenosha and uh, just uh, just the, the, the white nationalist violence that is so engraved into uh, the police department. So when people call for uh, defunding of the police uh, and reimagining how we uh, see safety, uh, that is, you know, literally the foundation of why, uh, because we see as in Kenosha and other places that uh, it almost becomes impossible to reform a body since its foundation, as Du Bois told us in Black Reconstruction, the police, you know, uh, were the origins are as, as slave catchers and North enemies to working class. So, you know, uh, institution at that body, you know, we have to begin to look in that, uh, dismantling it uh, and thinking of uh, something new. I think that also it's important for us to to appreciate the the kind of perfect storm that has birthed this current movement. Um, this you know hundred year right once in a once in a century pandemic where everyone is in the house, no one is working. Um, there this economic uncertainty that we're facing. This this um, crawling out of the holes of or crawling out into the public from the fabrics of American society, this deep-seated leftist, racist, white nationalist movement that has been given the autonomy and the space to come out from underground and to make themselves a part of mainstream America in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. And, and that, and here, I want to be very careful about my words. I'm not saying that this is new. I am saying that, that they have emerged from the shadows in a way that is disturbing to say the least. Um, I think that what we are, and, and so I want us to be clear that we are not, we cannot talk about the, the movement for black lives in in a vacuum without, or even compare it to what happened, um, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, because this is a very, very unique set of circumstances that we find ourselves in. And the other thing that I think, you know, as a, as a political scientist, the thing that scares me the most about this moment that we are in is that I don't 
think people really appreciate the slippery slope to oligarchy, the slippery slope to dictatorship that we are on. Like, it's not even like this is something (laughs) that is, you know, conceptual at this point. We are deep into this process. Um, And and I think most people don't recognize it because they don't, you know, I mean, we've, America has been dumbed down to the point where it's just, incredible. Um, Everything cannot be communicated in a soundbite. You know, I have people talk to me, you know, reporters say to me, I've got 30 seconds. Can you tell me what defund the police means in 30 seconds? Uh, No, it's not a concept that can be boiled down to a 30 second soundbite. Everything can't be. But we have created this whole society and that that makes people think that it can be that it should be um you know that and that goes across the gamut from our children to even our many elders you know think well just say it plain and say it simple and do it in 120 characters well you can't this stuff is complex and we have to really you know so one of the things that you'll hear me say if you pull up any of my many many youtube videos where i'm out in the street talking randomly What I always say at protests, what I always say to the masses is, this is great, but now we got to do the work. If you're not willing to do the work, you don't really want the progress. And the work means you have got to understand the systems. You've got to understand the systems. You can't talk about defunding the police, but then tell me you've never looked at the city budget. You can't do that, right? Or you don't understand the city budget. You can't tell me you want to defund the police, but you don't know how much money they have. You don't know where that money is going. And you don't have any concept of where you want it to go to. Like those things don't just magically happen. Like I think we can defund the police, absolutely. And I am somebody who can read a damn budget and know all the places that they hide in that money and call them on their foolishness. And when you call them out on their foolishness, they respond because, like Mr. Dillahunt said, we are at a point where we got them on their knees. They are afraid. We have political power. What they are counting on is that we don't know how to use it, right? And we don't have the, the skill base or the knowledge base to be able to use and harness the political power that we have. But those of us who do know, now is the time where we step in, right? Now is the time where we try, even if the children call us Uncle Tom's for doing it, that's okay because we got to understand that they still early. They still early on this progress a lot, on this road, a lot of them, and they don't understand the bigger picture. You know, I have been called, uh, yeah, uh, Lord. And I want to say to these children, baby, I read To Die for the People the first time when I was 12. You're not going to tell me that I, I built my whole life around fighting this struggle and always have. But because I have, I understand that you can't do it by yelling and screaming loud. You've got to infiltrate those systems and you got to be able to blow them up from inside. And I have to have, you know, I'm giving these babies grace because, again, I feel like part of this is we failed them. Um, and so they don't trust us. But I think we also have to, those of us who know better, have to have the fortitude to be called times so that we can get this work done on the inside and so that we can attack these systems the way that we we need to be we need to attack them to harness the power that we have in this moment and these babies will come around they'll stop calling us times maybe maybe not but we benefit from their energy in the street creating the environment where these folks are coming to the table 
And then we just now it's time for us to do our work. It's time for us to get at the table and and demand and make sure and hold accountable for the things that they're asking for. That's where we are. So we're out of time, but Jamu, I see you chomping at the bit. You got uh, 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. Uh, Attorney Berger, I wanted to, to mention that, you know, in addition uh, to uh, going inside and, you know, exploding it and transforming and building a level of accountability, I think what young people today is wanting to uh, seeking to build a new table, uh, seeking to build, you know, a new world order and build independent institutions. In this period, we've seen that in COVID uh, in terms of uh, mutual aid networks, in terms of, you know, building independent institutions that are really built on communalism and not replicating, you know, the individualistic nature of almost all the governing bodies uh, in the United States. So I think there's a, a, a demand to shift how we think about governance. Uh, yeah. But first, we got to right. break that stronghold. <laughs> all right. All right. This was a fascinating discussion. Thank you both. Attorney Don Blagrove, who is the executive director of Emancipate North Carolina and a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law, and Ujamu Dillahunt Holloway, who is a PhD student in history at the University of Michigan and a proud graduate of NCCU. And we would also like to thank you, as always, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, or if there's a topic you'd like for us to cover, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.